Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And Santosh, happy Black History Month. Happy? Is that the right greeting? Is yeah. there a greeting for the month? I, I don't know that there is. I like happy Black History Month. That sounds wonderful. Um, it's uplifting and it's true. You know, we are we are celebrating Black History during the month of February. So yeah, right. happy Black History Month. Skating in right at the deadline. <laughs> well, I you know, there's a compilation of history and then we um we we recorded this late, folks. So we have found a selection of some really interesting black medical history that I wanted to share with people that may surprise you, or hey, maybe you already knew this, in which case, what took you so long to tell me? Let's get started. Santosh, when I tell you the words, the Black Panthers, what do you traditionally associate with that? I think of uh, a party that was, it actually came out here in California, right? I believe Sacramento or Northern California. And um, they were an activist group that worked together to protect Black citizens, but also to give back to the community um, and advocate in um, open forum and with the government uh, in order to secure rights for African-Americans. Um, I, I think it was, it was very purposefully started in Northern California for some reason. I can't remember what it was. In October 1966, the Black Panther Party was founded in Oakland, California. So its stated purpose was to give political leadership and provide physical defense for the Black community that had you know just obtained civil rights in the 60s but overwhelmingly was still poor, oppressed, and vulnerable to violence. Now, 
while a lot of people associate one, the berets and the some of the militant wing is what we see in a lot of the media depictions. There's one aspect of the Black Panther Party you, it sounds like you're at least somewhat familiar with, and that was their involvement in specifically public health and community work. They were really behind some of the free clinic movement that I think even we still trained with during our medical school and internship. I know we've talked a lot about um, other involvement and how, um, not from California, I guess all the way on the other side on the East Coast, actually created the first uh, ambulance brigade, right? Um, All the way in Philadelphia. So this was a different kind of analog of um, Black people getting together to not only take care of other Black people, but anybody else living in their communities um, who were suffering from health, nutrition, and um, uh, public health, like, uh, you know, um, outbreak kind of problems. Yeah. So, I mean, and they had launched a bunch of programs, including one to provide free breakfast to children. But they also ran completely non, when you talk about nonprofit, they also had non-funding, free health clinics staffed with nurses, doctors, and health science students. One of the interesting things, I mean, you mentioned the ambulances that we've previously covered, but Mm -hmm. on HBO this month, they've released the film Judas and the Black Messiah, which... One of the early parts of the film, like right in the beginning, they show you some archival footage of the free ambulance service started by the Black Panther Party's Winston-Salem chapter. They'd had a number of advancements that, while not necessarily the only people coming up with it, they were certainly the only ones within the Black community. And they were doing it with way less resources than just about anyone else who might have had the same idea at the time. Their power to actually recruit uh, these individuals with specialized skills that those people, you know, who were just like you said, students, nurses, they saw, you know, the Black Panthers reaching out and immediately it was recognized that I want to be a part of this. I, I want to be involved in this and I want to give back. Um, that it's not only that, you know, they, they pushed for this name for it, but they garnered the, the trust and the faith of the community and the people who wanted to serve that community. And Josh, I know we're going to talk about it. Um, maybe even now or a little bit later, that was a really tough thing, right? Because even to this day, because of some of the horrible, horrible things that the medical establishment has done to people of color, especially Black Americans, um, there was an inherent worry that like, if you're coming to give care in a Black neighborhood, especially if you're a white person coming to give care in a Black neighborhood, that you're up to something, that you're not just not doing it out of the goodness of your heart. Or even, you know, forget about coming to the neighborhood. There was a feeling within a lot of the communities at the time that you go to the doctor with a runny nose and you come back in a body bag. And I think even today, we still see at times some of that level of suspicion or just distrust in general, uh, not only because of the hospital, but because of race, where it's like, you know, how much can I really trust you? But getting back to the Black Panthers, two of the advancements 
that really came out of their public health initiative, these free clinics, were one, the concept of community health workers, which specifically were community members trained to provide social and health-related services, which some of which I'll talk about in a few moments, which of course were embedded in a larger political strategy, but basically you could pull people almost off the street, anyone from the community and say, all right, you may not have medical training, but you can still provide this service to your community and let's coordinate a mass health thing. So, you know, you know, you can trust your neighbor or the owner of the local bakery or the grocer, whatever, like the candlestick maker, who knows? <laughs> no, and, and this is, I think we talked about this with the, the um, ambulance service. It was the same kind of spirit that, you know, yeah. Okay. Maybe I can't find everyone to staff this one who is, you know, formally educated and trained, but I know that so-and-so is physically and mentally able to learn these skills in this short period of time and can function in this capacity. And that's enormous. That, that message is so huge that, yeah, you're going to trust your own. And so you build the service from the inside out so that the people who need help are also the people helping. Let's talk about how these these clinics were run. There were 13 of the free clinics founded across the country by the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s, around 68, 69. Here, let's, here's one of the ones, the Chicago People's Medical Center, which was located in Lawndale on the west side, which at that time, again, was a project or a ghetto or whatever name for low-cost underfunded housing, you want to call it. And part of the center's training included, here's some of the services. They're training people to do laboratory urinalysis and blood tests. Do you mm -hmm. remember running your own urine? I mean, not your own urine, but <laughs> running urine during uh, internship. Uh, yeah, we had, we had two modalities. One was we'd be set up to actually do like a mini lab. Um, so we just have the dipstick. Um, so that was, that was one that we had. And then we did have a little bit more of a complex one where um, we would centrifuge it and then run it through like a spectral analyzer. And it would spit out a little thing on almost looking like a receipt. Uh, like we didn't have to do the, the really tough one where you actually did a, a microscopic, you know, exam. But it's a step um, up from tasting it to be like, hmm, diabetes. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it is. Yeah, we had to be very good with our with our uh, PPE. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> your PPE protection oh, equipment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't, I cannot believe I didn't hear that before. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, okay. So they would spin their own urine and blood tests as well as send people out to canvas the neighborhood and bring the center to the people. So they would take blood pressure, medical histories, and in general, determine if people had any kind of illness, and then they would tell them to visit the center where examination, treatment, and prescription are all free. Wow. And the original guiding document to the Black Panthers, which is worth a read, was issued in 1966, and it was called the 10-point program. It said nothing about health, but by 1970 following all these free leadership or following all these free clinics, uh, they did establish the 
10-point program, and it was modified. In July of 1972, the Associated Press broke the news about the Tuskegee syphilis study. Now, in short, for people who may not be familiar with it, what was that? Uh, yeah, this this was awful. It wasn't just awful in terms of how he treated black people, but it was one of the worst violations of bioethics in the history of the United States, uh, you know, from the standpoint of medical investigation, um, essentially there were hundreds of black American men who they, they were being actually told that they'd be treated for syphilis and they weren't. Um, and this was not, you know, a placebo controlled study or something like this. But by the way, this was after antibiotics, after penicillin. So we knew how to treat this disease. The question on the minds of these so-called investigators um, was, is the natural course of syphilis different in black people than it is from white people? And there was a hope, I guess, or a thought that like, if you could discover the difference in the host response, like the, you know, how these folks responded to a known disease where you knew the natural history from, you know, a couple of hundred years of experience, that if you said, oh, they react this way differently or that differently, then you could actually classify them, you know, like immunologically or something like that to see how they were different from white people. But it was a, a horrible, horrible experiment to run. And um, of course, you know, we found out, no, black people respond exactly the same as everybody else on the, on the face of the earth to syphilis. Um, and, you know, this was, Josh, essentially like a massive, massive violation of every ethical, um, you know, rule in the book. And truly, these investigators should have been brought up on charges the same as the Nuremberg trials. As a result of this, the already amended edition about health was further clarified in the 10-point program and reads as follows. Uh, the Black Panthers wanted, as an organization, completely free health care for all black and oppressed people. I want to note, you know, they expand beyond just their own community for that to say all oppressed people. Um, and it almost reads like its own constitution declaration. It's very formal language. Uh, we believe that the government must provide free of charge for the people health facilities, which will not only treat our illness, most of which have come about as a result of our oppression, but, but which will also develop preventative medical programs to guarantee future survival. Now, here's where we can bring this forward even into the modern day. The Black Panther Party learned that sickle cell anemia was a neglected genetic disease neglected because most of the people affected by it were of African descent. So although it had been described in 1910, it didn't really attract a lot of public attention, sympathy. There were no Sarah McLaughlin commercials about it and therefore no funding. Sure. Uh, treatment was extremely limited as to be perfectly honest, it still kind of is. Um, and there really just wasn't even 
since there wasn't really treatment and it was in a marginalized community, there wasn't really a test that people did or it wasn't employed. So the Black Panther Party started a national screening program for sickle cell. Wow. And it was so successful and impactful. Yeah, it was so successful and impactful that the Nixon administration uh, actually in the late 70s, began to donate funding for research into the eradication of sickle cell anemia and generally the universal newborn screenings for genetic diseases that all traced back in the 70s were a response to societal pressure begun by the Black Panthers. This is amazing. And now, well, a couple of things here. People are going to be shaking their head a little bit. It's like, what? The Nixon administration? And this is kind of a weird paradox, right, Josh, of Richard Nixon is that all the horrible things he did, you know, and, you know, and there were a lot of bad things. They actually, they did go after suppressing, you know, black people by criminalizing various drugs and all these kind of things. But there was also these weird really amazing health initiatives, which we still have to this day. He created the EPA, um, the Environmental Protection Agency, because he was a big advocate for fighting climate change, um, which was well recognized in that time. Um, and he created, uh, you know, health initiatives like this one. And yet to this day, everybody will know, you know, the kid is born. One of the things that happens is about 24 hours of life or so, you get a little heel prick and a small, small bout of blood is collected. And yes, every single child, you know, who is born, in, you know, with a public health program like this, they get screened for sickle cell. But not only that, but Josh, I think we're up to something on the order of like 120 to 200 different diseases. And the genesis was all right here. If, if this type of screening had not come up with in the first place, then I don't know that it would have launched looking for all of these other diseases like cystic fibrosis and PKU and um, immune deficiency like SCID. So it's a, it's a massive, massive advancement in public health. Yeah, so nobody else was calling for routine genetic screening before this. Again, the test existed. It just wasn't employed because they're like, ah, we can't treat it, so why bother? Right. Um, so it was their direct efforts that led to a change in national policy. And while the Black Panther Party eventually disbanded in 1982, it did leave behind a set of beliefs that have had lasting impact on other movements of the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, however, just fun fact, just like there's only one blockbuster video left in the world, one uh -huh. Black Panther clinic still remains in Seattle, but uh, it's not obviously controlled by them anymore. It was just established. Uh, it's yeah, the yeah. Carolyn Downs Family Medical Center, which helps all of those vulnerable in the Seattle area, and I believe free of charge, still operate wow. under, under those same founding principles. That's beautiful. That's our first Black History fun fact. The next, we're going to go back a little bit further into the past. A lot and further back. To 1837. Mm-hmm the very first black American to receive a medical degree, James McCune Smith. So aside from being a mentor to Frederick Douglass, who's, which is the only thing I previously knew about him aside from his degree, James McCune Smith was a boss. Now, he had to enroll at the University of Glasgow Medical School because of, well, admission policies at medical schools <laughs> in the 1800s. 
Yeah, th- this was a very strange. Although he had to enroll at the University of Glasgow Medical School because in of, Scotland, um, all the way over the southern side of the pond. But that was far from his only accomplishment. He was also the very first black person to own and operate a pharmacy in the United States and the first black physician to be published in U.S. medical journals. I'm so sorry. I just had a thing. This is so bad. I just, you know, just to see a, an African-American gentleman <laughs> come to our shores and say, pleased to meet you. My name is James McCune Smith. It just like not at all the face that you're expecting that accent to come out of. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you mean Scrooge McDuck? Yeah, yeah, but black dude. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying he sounded like like Scrooge. McDuck. Well, we made it 25 minutes <laughs> into the episode. Oh God. <laughs> okay. Before, I'm sorry. Before I'm sorry. we reach black Scrooge McDuck. So, he would have never had just, that accent, by the way. I, I, this is so disrespectful. I'm sorry. The man was born into slavery in 1813 in New York City, so he would have never had that accent. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, Dr. McKinsmith. out. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Dr. McKinsmith. Um, so, first black American to receive a medical degree. Mm-hmm. Also, first to own and operate a pharmacy in the United States, and the first to be published in U.S. medical journals. Now, that's really the most fun. And I know you're thinking, really? The medical journals? That's where you're finding the most fun? And I submit to you, look where you're talking. Like, look who you're coming to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi. Well, welcome to those listening for the first time. We nerd out and love peer-reviewed literature. But secondly, he pioneered the use of statistics to challenge, well, pretty much all the racist articles of the day. Like, he would throw down with you with an angry letter backed up with graphs and a PowerPoint. So he exposed scientific flaws in the racially biased U.S. Census of 1840. He challenged racial theories promoted in Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia. He challenged uh, the practice of phrenology, examining the bumps of people's bumps heads. On your head. Yeah, <laughs> to try to uh, examining the bumps on your head, specifically to try to determine things like personality. So yeah. let's let me talk about his case reports, and then we can get to his his uh, statistical rap battles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Listen, you imagine Scrooge McDuck. I'm seeing Hamilton. No, uh, no, absolutely. So, You're a better man than I, Dr. Josh. So, but Dr. McCune-Smith authored the very first case report ever written by an African-American in America entitled Case of Tylism with Fatal Termination. But because of his race, he was not allowed to present the case before the New York Medical and Surgical Society, uh, Mm -hmm. lest it cause endless pearl clutching. Instead, (laughs) instead, the doctor who consulted with him to read it before the society or, you know, the respectable hat was a man by the name of Dr. John Watson. Real name. Nice. All right. So he, he passed it off to Watson. Um, Josh, I had to look up Tylism, P-T-Y-A-L-I-S-M, and it is an excessive flow of saliva. 
So I have no idea how an excessive flow of saliva ended in death. Aspiration. Done. Okay. (laughs) Case solved. (laughs) You didn't go and actually read the literature, did you? No, not for that one. But I'm (laughs) sure I was correct. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Okay, fine. So... After Watson read his paper, Mm. he then published another, uh, a case series, which discussed five women who experienced cessation of menses coincident with the use of opium. And that was published in the New York Journal of Medicine and basically said, hey, when women smoke a lot of opium, they stop menstruating. And if they stop smoking opium, guess what comes back? This is really cool. And we, we know, you know, opiates are downers. Um, they slow down metabolic processes. Um, Josh, I'm sure you can tell us all about the horrors of your uh, patients where you needed to give opiates and they get horribly constipated, which is why all of our patients are on some form of Miralax or Colhase. But it would also slow down anything else which had, uh, you know, a contractile or fluid type of motion, including, you know, uterine secretions and uterine bleeding. It also means that with the assistance of this black doctor, John Watson had to deal with a bunch of opiate addicts on a case series. <laughs> I love it. Just, just throwing that out there. Totally unrelated. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, if those cases weren't enough, John Watson, or not John Watson, if that wasn't enough, Dr. McCune Smith was far from done. In an 1848 article published in The Analyst, he provided a statistical reexamination of data claiming that homeopathic treatments led to a lower death rate among children in New York orphanages. Aww. He held a very similar opinion of homeopathy as we do here on this show. There was a previous paper or something that showed that homeopathic treatments helped kids in the orphanages, and he re-examined that and showed that it was false. Is right. that true? Well, yes. He went back okay. and showed that he he critiqued. He brought his red pen to the original paper and nice. and did a revision of mortality statistics to include only those children who had been under continuous homeopathic treatment. This highlighted the importance of, you know, having a controlled comparison. And basically, he concluded that all of his opponent, Lothrop's statistics were contrived Uh with the most badass uh, sign-off. where he said, you know, a custom of quietly thrusting away the very sick children in order that they may die elsewhere. At least such will be a natural impression until the 200 and odd children sent without record from this facility are more satisfactorily accounted for. Boom! That was the finishing (laughs) statement. The mic drop was, may the regular practitioner of medicine battle against the most deadly quackery that curses the 19th century in the form of homeopathy. (laughs) Oh, poor guy must be rolling over in his grave to know that this is still going on in the 21st century. Yeah, so Lothrop was cherry picking. He was choosing what children to treat so that he would get the best 
uh, outcomes, right? So if you only treat healthy children anyway, that means that your treatment is going to look really good and successful. And it looks like the comparison group was just not there. He went ahead and tossed out any potential patients, children in this case, orphan children, if they were too sick and treating them would result in a higher mortality with his homeopathic treatments. Yeah, so this guy basically devoted an entire paper's worth of time and effort to publish just to say that, you know, this homeopathy is not just wrong, it is dangerous and saving children's lives. So health and snarky. Nice. Um, but he didn't stop there. This man was a publishing machine because <laughs> refuting racially biased statistics was his job, his talent, his passion. And <laughs> he used it to challenge the Reverend Orville Dewey's claim that free African-Americans were worse off than slaves of the South. And Aww. this was a reference to the 1840 census, which cited the high insanity and mortality rates among the free, where which a lot of slave owners used to claim inferiority of a race and that they were better off slaving. So it was used to justify a lot of terrible things. Sure. Um, however, in an uncommonly sophisticated statistical analysis – that Dr. McCune-Smith, again, looked at the actual data and showed that African-Americans in the North were living longer, achieving scholastically, and attending church more frequently in comparison with their enslaved counterparts, basically noting the errors with the deceptive use of higher mortality rates in the North due to a higher level of industry and sure. failure to report deaths and disease, plus failure to keep track of humans who are basically treated like livestock. So uh, all the failure to correct for age or mortality rates or causes of mortality through the entire conclusions of that census into question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this is so, so important. And it's why even to this day, peer review and criticism is really, really important, but it, it's so weird to think about, right, Josh? We don't have the insidiousness of racism and bigotry and hatred in some sort of, you know, overt fashion. You're actually, you know, from a very scholarly standpoint, um, these people like Lathrop uh, and uh, John C. Calhoun um, are, are coming around and actually in a horribly insidious manner using their authority and their education to twist facts uh, in order to support, you know, their own bigoted stance. So it's amazing um, that, you know, we had an advocate like this, you know, coming out of Glasgow and <laughs> coming all the way around and not standing on a podium or yelling or screaming or anything, just quietly going around and countering scholarly incompetence and, you know, kind of willful damaging non-data with his proper statistical analysis and data. That is so cool. That is badass. That's how you fight. Um, he also ended up meeting Lafayette from Hamilton. <laughs> oh, that's where this was from. This, he, he's, he's, you know, he's got his pen. This was the whole, why do you write like you're running out of time? Yeah. And so he just yeah. spent, you know, a huge portion of his career debunking, 
racist ideas with science, and on top of that, ran the first pharmacy and was the very first uh, African-American medical doctor in the U.S. So the guy was impressive on every level. Yeah, this was and and like all the way up to his death, you know, he was still uh, advocating for freedom of people, you know, good health and good science. You know, it is awesome. Now, Josh, from all of this, I was it was so cool for me to learn that he didn't actually finish his career as a physician. Um, he was actually appointed at Wilberforce College as a professor of anthropology. Um, so, you know, he he was too ill to take the position, but he he was actually seen as, you know, a, a human scientist rather than, you know, just narrowly a, a physician, you know, treating individuals. Rather than just a scientist treating humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what exactly. we are. We're just... <laughs> Scientists treating humans. <laughs> well, and you put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, well, I love this. No, going through, dude, this guy refuted people like Thomas Jefferson, you know, because Thomas Jefferson. Not had people his... like Thomas Jefferson. He directly yeah. refuted Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, just that dude, the, the, his, the level of which he was operating just with scholarliness with logical arguments and with uh, the pen, you know, th- this was a revolutionary. I love it. Yeah. So you step to uh, James McCune Smith, you best bring your receipts. <laughs> Moving on to our third topic for Black History Month, you may already be familiar with Henrietta Lacks. Oh, yeah. Especially so as a lab worker. Sells. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, uh, I love her contribution to science. I hate how that contribution of science was obtained. <laughs> well, we'll get into that in just a moment, but I'm going to give a very almost tragically abbreviated Cliff's Notes version of her story yeah. and right. then tell you something you may not know. And then you can jump in and, and fill in all those details. Fire away. So for those of you at home, In 1951, a young mother of five named Henrietta Lacks went to Johns Hopkins Hospital complaining of vaginal bleeding. On exam, she was found to have a tumor on her cervix, and she went to Johns Hopkins because this was one of only a couple hospitals that would treat poor and African-American people. As the records show, she began undergoing radium treatments for her cancer, which was the best treatment available at the time. A sample of her cells were retrieved, and then without her knowledge, consent, or really informing anyone involved, they were just sent to a local oncologist, a cancer doctor named Dr. George Gay, who collected cancer tissue from everybody for years uh, to basically study it. But his problem was every sample he received quickly died in Dr. Gay's lab. You know, the, he, he treated cell lines like houseplants. Yeah. And, <laughs> and this was, this is still a difficult thing to this day. There are some normal cell lines that you can keep alive in culture for some period of time, like human fibroblasts. Right. But others, you know, that you'd want to, 
perpetuate for a while in order to study them, they'll just, you, you give them all the nutrients and stuff that you want, right? And you hydrate them and everything in, in the little flask. Um, but they shrivel up and die and nobody co- quite understood why. You just don't have a green thumb, Santosh. <laughs> well, it's more of like a, a pink or a red thumb, I suppose, <laughs> because of the, you know, you want blood. But okay. aside from his bacterial houseplants, what Dr. Gade would discover is that the cells of Miss Lax were functionally immortal, like Deadpool from the comics, where other cells would die, the cells from her tumor would double every 20 to 24 hours, even, and this is important, outside of the culture in a test tube. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. So even if you weren't, this is kind of a strange thing to this day about HeLa cells. If you don't feed them the kind of the nutrition that you need. So a cell culture is not just, you know, liquid, right? It's not just saline. It has a bunch of nutrients in there. It has a, you know, everything that a cell needs to kind of work and survive. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the HeLa cells didn't quite need that. They just needed some small amount of nutrients and they just keep growing. Yeah, no matter what is thrown at them. Now, they've mostly been used, so they were named Gila from the first two letters of her first and last names. And I always associate it with the Gila monsters, just because it rhymed, but her (laughs) cells are truly a beast. They've been used to study the effects of toxins, drugs, hormones, and viruses on the growth of cancer cells. Uh, They've been sent into space, They have played a crucial role in the development of the polio vaccine and more to the modern day, they were the human cell line of choice for the COVID-19 research breakthroughs. In fact, the very first study in the beginning of the search for the vaccine that managed to identify the infectivity of the virus did so using HeLa cells. And here's how it worked. Scientists began studying COVID-19 using HeLa cells because they are sent to labs all over the world by Johns Hopkins on a, mm-hmm. still on a public apology tour. We're sorry yeah. we took these without knowledge. They are free to the world to use. Uh, but they soon found that the virus, that COVID, really didn't infect HeLa cells at all. Like it couldn't get in. Why? Because I told you, this woman was a beast. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, there's a different reason, but yeah, go ahead and tell them. But the curiosity behind her beast mode led researchers to look for the key to viral entry that was missing on HeLa cells, but present on others. And this found the marker ACE2 that was used to enter the cells. So the absence of this from HeLa is what led to the development of the treatments and vaccines that target how to get into the coronavirus. So now you can fill us in on the rest of the legacy of Henrietta Lacks, but I bet you didn't know she's helped us even to the point of the coronavirus pandemic today. (laughs) I love it. I absolutely love it. I think you covered uh, just about everything, uh, Josh. And the only sad, well, there's a lot of sad things about this. The lessons that came out of this, Aside from the scientific lessons that HeLa cells could teach us because they were an immortalized cell line that you could propagate and you could replicate your science on over and over because you could 
create more as long as you provided uh, nutrients and um, you know the building blocks for the cells to replicate. By the way, Josh, this was kind of the start of immortalized cell lines. So knowing that these could exist also set off um, a search for other types of cells, which we have today, several different lines of cells that are called immortalized cells. Um, But I think very, very importantly, this was a cornerstone of uh, our bioethical development. Early 20th century medicine, we're talking about we did not perform a good informed consent on Henrietta Lacks. You didn't tell her what those cells were being used for. You didn't say where you were going to send them. You didn't say how long you were going to keep them. And nowadays it would be even scarier because we're able to decode, you know, genetic information, which they weren't able to, to the same extent that we can nowadays. So, you know, you really could have gotten way too much knowledge about a donor, you know, if you didn't show them, you know, and consent them that, hey, is this okay? And then protect that information properly. So, uh, you know, we actually had these, Josh, um, you know, lessons about informed consent that came in, okay? And this issue actually was brought up all the way to the Supreme Court of California, Moore versus Regents of the University of California. And you, this was the court case that ruled that a person's discarded tissue Um, are not the property, can be commercialized, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, it's set off this idea, all right, that you cannot do this to a person. And so nowadays we have what's called the common rule. Okay, so 1981, common rule, you have to have informed consent by ensuring that a doctor has informed patients if they plan to use any details of the patient's case in research and give them the choice of disclosing the details or not. If the patient says no, you're done. And so that's why, you know, they they shouldn't have been able to own that tissue before they got consent from Ms. Lax. Uh, and, and, you know, since then, we have to apply the common rule every single time we want to get tissue from somebody or, or any information about somebody. So... Three pretty significant and, I don't know, perhaps surprising contributions uh, to you. I felt like that would be a good way to close out February. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, I think it's a wonderful way to, uh, to, to uh, close out this beautiful month. And, uh, you know, happy Black History Month. Now, before we sign off, I do want to take a couple moments to allow uh, Santosh to talk about the celebrity he's married to, the voice of Mars. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know if this is going to like boost our listenership. And at some point, we should have Swathi on if she wants to talk. Um, although she's got really nothing to do with medicine. Or I mean, we, do a lot of, we do a lot of space medicine episodes. So there is a section of our audience that crosses over in interest. So tell us about how you're married to the voice of Mars, Santosh. Yeah. yeah. So uh, my wife uh, is Dr. Swathi Mohan. She is an engineer at the Jet Propulsion Lab. Uh, 
And uh, for those of you guys who haven't been living under a rock, <laughs> she was a, uh, a systems engineer in navigation and controls for the Mars 2020 mission. Um, for a very long time, she was steering uh, this amazing rocket through space headed on its way to Mars and engineered uh, a lot of the uh, the landing system that got the rover onto the ground, including um, this very special and new piece called Terrain Relative Navigation, um, which helped the lander actually spot the patch of land that it wanted to land on and pick it all by itself. Um, but from the publicity side, and it was totally her honor, and uh, it's, it's a huge deal. She got to be the voice of the Mars landing. And so uh, for all of you guys who heard the words, touchdown confirmed, um, and uh, all the other things that led up to that, that was my wife, Dr. Swati Mohan, and I'm incredibly proud of her. Um, Josh, can I tell you uh, one nugget for our listeners? Um, I, I don't know if our if our uh, episode's going to drop before this happens, um, but she was just on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and so she's going to be the the episode guest this Saturday. Sweet, yeah, and and I gotta say, I'm almost certain there's a lot of crossover between our listeners and the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me audience. Uh, so as Peter Sagal often says on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, well, all the things you've done up till now pales in comparison <laughs> before winning the uh, Not Your Job quiz on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used in researching this show. And until next time, as always, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay safe, and if you're lucky enough to have gotten your vaccine... Or you just want to escort an old person somewhere nice? Happy travels. <laughs> Bye, guys. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.